Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, and welcome to Wealthy On. I'm James Conner, and today my guest is Edgar Denny. Ed has had a very long and distinguished career on Wall Street. He was also an economist for the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and now he heads up his own firm, your Denny Research. Ed, thank you very much for joining us today. How are things in Long Island? Well, we've had uh, no snow, really. A lot of rain. Hasn't been all that cold, so, so far, so good. So, Ed, because you are in the great state of New York, I got to ask you about football. I guess you're very disappointed about the Giants. Yeah, my wife and I are disappointed that they won the last game because we were hoping they'd have a better draft pick position. But uh, but what can you do? We'll deal with it. So now I guess I, I guess you're going to have to cheer on the Buffalo Bills. Yeah, I don't know. That's a stretch for us. Ed, before we do the deep dive on the economy, we have a lot going on in the global economy and also geopolitics. And I'm just kind of curious, with all these various events, if what you most are concerned with or what keeps you up at night? Well, I think you uh, you got right to it. Uh, the The geopolitical issue is uh, front front center in terms of everybody's concerns. Uh, what's going on in the Red Sea uh, is uh, is un- un- unsettling. Uh, and uh, the the impact on global trade uh, could uh, be not as bad as what we had with the supply disruptions during the pandemic, but it certainly isn't going to help in uh, everybody's uh, effort to bring inflation down at, uh, on the short, short term. Uh, we've had a lot of goods inflation coming down sharply, and now maybe that's going to reverse it for a month or two. Uh, we'll see how long this la- all lasts. Uh, Right now, it's uh, looks as though the the war between uh, Hamas and, and Israel is uh, turning increasingly into a regional war. So it's uh, very unpredictable and unsettling. But uh, I'm kind of monitoring the price of gold of, of oil, I should say, not gold. The price of oil as a way to uh, get an assessment from the markets of just how bad the situation is. And right now, despite everything that's happened, the price of oil has been trending down since September 27th. And October 7th, of course, was that awful day where Hamas brutally attacked uh, Israel, but things have only gotten worse in that part of the world. And then, of course, geopolitically, we have to continue to worry about uh, Russia and Ukraine and uh, you know how that awful war is going to uh, play out. And then last but not least, uh, maybe it's not even last, but, but not least is uh, the possibility of uh, the Chinese mainland attacking Taiwan. And I want to touch on a few of these issues. And in spite of all of these things happening, 
You're very bullish on the U.S. and the U.S. markets, and you were recently featured in Barron's Magazine with a number of other economists, and you had the highest target for the S&P. Tell us what is your target for the S&P for 2024, and maybe you can tell us why you are so bullish. Well, at the beginning of last year, I was quite bullish, and I I had a, uh, a, a forecast of 4,600, which uh, seemed far-fetched, but it turned out to be not bullish enough because we, we went uh, somewhat above that. Uh, now I'm talking about 5,400 by the end of this year, and uh, maybe that's looking a little less far-fetched uh, after the rally we've had since October 27th. And then in 2025, I think there's potential for going to 6,000. So clearly I'm not uh, in the recession camp. I haven't been in the recession camp for the past couple of years. I'm not in it uh, for 2024. And I think uh, the economy will continue to be resilient and grow uh, into uh, 2025. And in that environment, I think earnings could be... uh, Fairly surprising on the on the upside, uh, maybe up from two twenty two twenty five last year to something like two fifty uh, this year, and then uh, two seventy uh, next year. You raise a good point. We're going to see uh, Q four numbers coming out here in the coming weeks, and it's going to be interesting to see how the consumer was during um, the last few months of two thousand and twenty three. Yeah, well, I, I've been optimistic on the consumer. You, you know, uh, I've had this sort of uh, uh, glib view of consumers that uh, when we Americans are happy, we shop, and when we're depressed, we shop even more. So there's sort of an automatic stabilizer there. But, of course, that's contingent on uh, jobs increasing and not decreasing. And uh, so far, the labor market's proven remarkably strong. Uh, we continue to see initial unemployment claims uh ranging around 200,000, just north of 200,000, which is consistent with the unemployment rate remaining below 4%. And we continue to see indicators suggesting that there's still plenty of job openings uh, out there uh, that uh, should allow for people to get get jobs. And jobs, of course, are one of the sources of purchasing power. The other one is wages uh, have been rising faster than prices since early last year. Real wages are, are up. And by the way, that's not sustainable unless productivity is making a comeback, which happens to be uh, my view and at the heart of my optimistic outlook for the rest of uh, this year, next year, and even the rest of the decade. So let's dive into the economy. The Fed had its last meeting in December, and they gave every indication that rates are going to be on hold now. And we have another meeting coming up here at the end of the month or the end of January, what do you think the Fed is going to say? What do you think they're going to do? Do you think rates will be, in fact, held or on hold? Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, I think the, the, the stock market, the bond market got very uh, exuberant. I don't know if it was irrational, but uh, it's, uh, they, they got very exuberant uh, in the last uh, couple of months of, uh, of, the, uh, of the old year. And uh, one of the reasons for that is... Uh, Investors concluded that uh, if the Fed was, in fact, done raising rates, then we have to start focusing on how much they'll be lowering them uh, this year in 2024. And I think the market started to discount uh, four, five, even six uh, rate hikes uh, this year and starting maybe even at, uh, in March. Uh, I'm thinking that uh, two to three is all we're going to get because I'm not in the recession camp. I think the economy is going to remain resilient. I think inflation is going to come down 
uh, but the Fed is going to be very slow in actually lowering rates. They're not going to be rushing it because the nightmare scenario for them is that after all they've accomplished so far, they don't want to see that all suddenly blow up in their face with a rebound in inflation again. And look, uh, with the, what's going on in the Middle East, we still have to consider the possibility of a 1970s kind of uh, scenario. The 1970s, we had two energy shocks that led to uh, twin peaks in inflation. In the current situation, we had an energy shock uh, when Russia invaded Ukraine at the beginning of uh, 2022. And now there's a potential for another energy shock Things really get uh, out of control uh, in the uh, in the Middle East, and they're out of control now. Uh, what I have in mind is, uh, you know, as I said, uh, the price of oil is going to tell me when things are really out of control in terms of its impact on the global economy. So that's something to be concerned about. You made mention of the fact that the economy is very strong, very robust, and the jobs market is also very strong. Are you concerned at all that the Fed does want to cut, or they've? given that indication that they want to cut in such a strong environment? Well, I think on, on balance, they're going to remain conservative. They're not going to jump the gun and uh, lower interest rates uh, prematurely or too aggressively. They might uh, pull back on their quantitative tightening uh, program, and that might get the markets excited again about uh, lots of rate cuts ahead here. Uh, but I don't think they're going to want to mess with success. I mean, if the economy continues to perform reasonably well, we're not talking about a boom, we're just talking not, not going into recession and the consumer spend and capital spending remains relatively strong. And let's not forget, fiscal stimulus is extremely stimulative. So with, with all that in the background, if they do get progress on inflation, some folks at the Fed are going to say, well, we have to lower interest rates because if we don't, the real interest rates are actually going up, right? I mean, if the Fed funds rate stays at uh, five uh, and a quarter percent, five and a half percent, and inflation keeps coming down, then inflation-adjusted real interest rates uh, will be actually tightening. And that's been an argument that some Fed officials have been making. Uh, and I think that will uh, persuade them uh, certainly not to raise interest rates again, because the markets, in effect, will be tightening if they just kept uh, keep the Fed funds rate where it is. Uh, but I think they, uh, as I said, I think they're going to be slow. And so I'm I'm sticking with a two, maybe three uh, rate cuts next uh, this year. And I'm thinking that uh, it's more likely in the second half than in the first half. I think the first half for the stock market is going to be a little bit uh, sloppy, sideways kind of action uh, because I think the market did uh, discount um, more rate cuts than is, are going to be delivered. But on the other hand, if that's, if that's the scenario, it'll be because the economy is doing reasonably well and earnings are doing uh, also uh, quite well. So I don't really see a correction. I don't see a major sell-off. Uh, if, if anything, I'm, 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 I see potential for a melt-up in the market led by technology, but we can discuss that along the way. So as you said, uh, a cut in rates is all predicated on what's happening with inflation. We recently saw right. CPI numbers, and they were a little bit stronger than expected, 3.4% year over right. year and 3.9%. X food and energy, which I was really surprised with. But what yeah. were your thoughts on those CPI numbers? Well, you know, we we have seen the price of oil and gasoline continue to come down. Uh, we have seen used car prices come down according to uh, the wholesale uh, a wholesale price index for, for used cars. So you're right. I was a little surprised as well that 
uh, we didn't make uh, somewhat more progress. Also, we haven't really made uh, more progress in the rent component, which everybody knows is a wacky, lagging indicator. And that uh, actual rents, according to market indexes, have come down a lot more. Talking about inflation, not the actual level of uh, of rents. And so I don't really uh, take take this number too much to heart. I think that the downtrend is still very much intact for, for lower inflation. Uh, but uh, it's, it's probably not going to be a straight line. And there, there could actually be some more setbacks along the way, depending on what goes on with shipping rates uh, in the uh, in the Red Sea as a result of the, the, the unsettled military situation. And what do you say to those people who say the CPI number is not a real number and inflation is not running at 3.4% or whatever the number is, and it's significantly higher? Right. Well, I think that reflects uh, people's experience of going shopping. And they and, and it wasn't too long ago that uh, before the pandemic, they still remember what those prices were. And they know that a lot of prices have increased by 20 to 50% and haven't, haven't come down uh, since uh, pre-pandemic uh, pricing. And so they they... They, they kind of look at the level of the prices, uh, where as economists, uh, on the other hand, uh, tend to look at the inflation rate, the, the change in price inflation. And so when we say that inflation is coming down, that doesn't mean that the price levels are coming down. It just means the rate at which prices are going up is slowing. Uh, that still hurts. I mean, if the prices you know, have increased dramatically and now the good news is that they're increasing at a lower rate, that's not good news for a lot of people. Most people don't view that as good news other than economists. And economists, you know, tend to uh, live in their ivory towers, I guess. Uh, but uh, look, um, I think that uh, the rate of inflation does matter to the to the bond market. It, it, it matters to the Fed. It matters to how the Fed uh, deals with uh, with the economy and interest rates. So inflation does matter for monetary policy. But people are right. Uh, but they also have to factor in, which economists do in a, uh, frequently, is uh, said, okay, prices have gone up. What have wages done? And wages, a lot of wages have actually kept up with inflation, not every, not all inflation, not not, not every uh, components of inflation. Uh, but we have seen wage inflation uh, p- picking up. And now it looks like wage inflation is increasing faster than prices. In other words, real wages, inflation-adjusted wages, are going up, so there is some uh, there is some comeback here for real wages, and that couldn't possibly be happening consistently unless there was more productivity, which uh, again is uh, the the heart of my story and optimism is that productivity is making a comeback. Yeah, you're right. I, I believe I read recently that there was over 20 major strikes in the U.S. in 2023. A major strike being anything with over a thousand employees, right. and of course they all negotiated very aggressive packages. I remember, the, yeah, uh, I think it was UPS. I was shocked yeah. by how much they're getting paid, but um, yeah, well, you know, certainly from their perspective, uh, they could argue that uh, we had a, a shock here in terms of how much more they have to pay for just 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 to live, um, and uh, you know, and that there were. Maybe there was some uh, need for them to catch up uh, for not getting uh, better pay increases over the past few years. But keep in mind that um, in the private sector, uh, unions account for about 6% of uh, payroll employment. 
in the private sector. Uh, back during the 1970s, which people do worry about uh, and see similarities with, uh, unions were about 35% of the uh, of the labor force. So it's true that they're getting big increases, uh, but uh, they don't add up as to as big an impact, a direct impact. But there, of course, can be indirect impacts to the extent that people who aren't in unions, uh, you know, get a little bit more aggressive with their their employers and say, you know, I need to be paid more. We have seen people quit and 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 uh, increase their wages simply by going someplace else where they they're paying more. That's an interesting point, and I just want to clarify that. Did you say thirty-seven percent of the workforce in the nineteen seventies? Uh, I, I think it's thirty-five percent. Yeah, thereabouts. About a, about a third of the labor force was uh, private sector. Uh, labor force was unionized, and now we're down to six uh, percent. So it's quite quite a quite a change. So what's happened? Why such the such a change? Well, I think a lot of that had to do with the uh, with so-called deindustrialization. In the 1980s, we had a lot of competition from overseas, from Japan at first. And then when China joined the World Trade Organization uh, in uh, 2001, we had even more competition uh, from cheap labor overseas. And that really started to uh, take, take the uh, juice out of the, uh, the, the union sector. Uh, but as you said, uh, the, the union sector has made a comeback here. Uh, but they're still relatively small compared to the size of the of the uh, job market. And a lot of the in the past, a lot of the uh, jobs were in, in areas where we produce in manufacturing. And uh, now uh, a lot of the jobs are in services, and some of them certainly are unionized. Uh, and some some of those unions have been getting bigger pay increases. Uh, but on balance, the uh, the data shows that wage inflation has continued to moderate. Again, it's the inflation rate, not the level of wages. Wages, the, the level of wages has been going up, and now they're going up faster than prices. Which uh, it's not a matter of uh, you know uh, catching up and uh, whether they de- whether labor deserves it or not. It's all a matter of productivity. If if uh, labor and and management are able to work together to create a more productive economy then people are going to get paid more in uh, inflation-adjusted wages, which is what's happening. It's a win-win situation for everybody. The other interesting thing, uh, the the CPI numbers, I was really surprised. Um, it was 3.9% ex-food and energy. And I understand energy's pulled back quite a bit. The price of oil has gone yeah. from 95 down to the low 70s here in the last few months. But right. food. Man, oh man, that you know that number implies that the price of food has uh, come down, and I don't see that. I was in Whole Foods recently. Yeah, and I, know. I was going to I was going to get some beef tenderloin. It was forty bucks a pound, and so I right. opted for the flank steak. Yeah, and uh, the CPI really doesn't capture that as well as the other measure of inflation that the Fed watches, and that's the personal consumption expenditures deflator, which does in fact uh, capture uh, switching if people switch. From uh, you know expensive uh, beef to uh, cheaper chicken, the consumption deflator will sh- will show that, and that will actually show up as a as a, a moderation in inflation with some adjustment. Uh, whereas the CPI uh, won't won't adjust for how the shopping cart, how the basket of food changes. So another big component of CPI and just overall spending is the price of oil, and you touched on this earlier. And given everything that's going on in the world with geopolitics, I'm surprised it's trading where it's at. 
Are, are you? No, I'm, I'm actually not because um, I, I look at things globally. And uh, as you know, uh, for the past couple of years, a lot of economists, a lot of strategists were anticipating a recession, figuring that's the only way to bring inflation down and that the Fed would have to raise interest rates to levels that cause the recession to bring inflation down. And I uh, argue that, well, you know, maybe the Chinese are going to do us a favor for a change. They're going to have the recession. And they have been having a recession because their property bubble has burst. Their demography is terrible. That's a geriatric population. I've uh, referred to it as the world's uh, largest nursing home. So when I look at it from that perspective, China has been actually exporting a lot of deflation over the past year or so. Uh, we've seen their prices coming down because of their recession. And uh, we still import a lot from China, and that's helped to keep a lid on, uh, on pricing here. So one of the reasons that inflation's come down so quickly is because goods inflation's come down. Now we're just kind of waiting for rent inflation to come down more. Also, by the way, Europe is in a shallow recession right now, which also what takes pressure off of the global demand. So you add it all together, and it adds up to a, a weak environment for demand for oil. Meanwhile, uh, despite uh, everything that uh, Biden has said and uh, about why he doesn't like fossil fuels, uh, the fact of the matter is uh, uh, oil field production of uh, is at an all-time record high in the United States of 13.3 million barrels per day. And there's just simply plenty of oil around. Angola recently dropped out of OPEC because they don't want OPEC to impose restrictions on how much they can can export. So that's been very helpful in terms of bringing inflation down. I watched the price of copper too, uh, just as important as oil, I think, uh, because copper is particularly sensitive to what happens in China. But, you know, we've seen mortgage rates come down in the U.S. and some significant pickup in housing activity, housing starts. And you would think that that would really bull up the price of copper, but it hasn't really moved much. And that's because they're not building any any apartments in China right now. So the, the demand for copper is weak in China, more than offsetting, uh, or at least offsetting uh, the, the strength in the United States. And so I just want to clarify a couple of points you said. Sure. Uh, you think the price of oil is low because we've had a big pullback in China and also a more right. subtle pullback in Europe. Correct. And there's more supply. Supply and demand. Straightforward. And I think going into a presidential election, the U.S. government's probably happy with that. I, I think they're happy with it. There's not much they can do about it. They already kind of spent a good part of the strategic petroleum reserve trying to make us all happy uh, when Russia invaded Ukraine and trying to kind of minimize uh, the shock of oil prices going back, uh, going up back then. Uh, you know, it's debatable whether that was necessary or not, but the fact is, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve uh, was brought down significantly, and now it has to be rebuilt. And uh, even with that potential, uh, we're seeing the price of oil quite weak. So let's talk a little bit more about China, because it is the second largest economy in the world, and we've sure. had this big pullback in that economy. And I guess you could even say there's a negative wealth effect there. But what do you think that's- I, I would, yeah. I think that's a very important point is that, you know, their stock market is down like 50% over the past uh, couple of years and their property, uh, their property is getting, you know, if you, a lot of the Chinese bought apartments uh, as investments and a lot of those apartments are, are, don't even earn rent. They're just vacant. And now they're seeing those, the prices of those apartments going down and even 
if they wanted to sell them, they'd have to sell them at a lower price. So I think it's a very depressing development for the Chinese consumer. And of course, we can't have a discussion on China without talking about Taiwan. And you've written quite a bit about this. What are your thoughts? Well, it's, uh, you know, the President Xi of uh, China has, uh, over the past six months or so, uh, fairly repeatedly uh, insisted that uh, Taiwan is China and that uh, the Chinese government intends to uh, bring Taiwan into the fold one way or, or the other. Uh, and uh, I think it was recently on Mao's birthday, uh, he wore a Mao suit and uh, once again reiterated that uh, Taiwan is, uh, is China. And so uh, it certainly sounds like from a rhetoric, rhetoric standpoint, he's turning up the heat. But the, you know, the Chinese military has been uh, playing cat and mouse with uh, Taiwan by uh, overflying uh, some of the red lines on a fairly regular basis. So uh, they're, uh, th th they could attack at any moment. Uh, but on the other hand, they know that where their economy is so fragile, uh, the West would most likely respond the way they did to, to Russia, even though it would hurt the, the West because the West is much more dependent on China for all sorts of things. Uh, but it could could get kind of ugly if uh, if the West responds to an invasion of Taiwan. So I think the Chinese government, because of their weak economy, is uh, going to hold off on any uh, planned in invasion. On the other hand, there is this theory that when things aren't going well in one's economy and you're a dictator, uh, then why not start a war overseas and get all, all the nationalist fervor up and blame everything that's happening in your economy on, on foreigners? So it's uh, it's a dicey situation. Now, you raise a very good point there, especially during a presidential election year. It was interesting to see President Xi come to San Francisco. I believe that was last yeah. month. Yeah. And um, what do you think his objectives were? Well, I, it was panda diplomacy. I mean, in, in his speech, he, he, he said uh, many times that uh, he, he would like to see the uh, the the world a peaceful place where China and the United States uh, work uh, in partnership uh, for uh, keeping global stability and all that. And he basically said, you know, if uh, if the U.S. becomes less hostile towards China because uh, the U.S. has a lot of complaints about the way China does uh, business and does trade, he said, you know, if the U.S. just kind of simmers down, then he'll send the pandas back. And he didn't say that for sure. He said, well, you know, we'll we'll consider it, uh, but as you know, the the, the pandas uh, were were sent were were here on loan, and they were sent back. And she uh, acknowledged that uh, many Americans are, would like to have the pandas come back and and, and for a longer stay and visit. So, uh, you know, the, the the bottom line of it is he's trying to he's 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 trying to sweet talk uh, the the situation, but. Uh, at the end of the day, the the West is no longer uh, being fooled by uh, many of China's uh, unfair practices, and uh, things haven't changed on the geopolitical front. Quite the opposite, uh, with them building islands in the South China Sea, with them uh, starting up um, confrontations with some of their neighbors, whether it be the Vietnam or the Philippines. Uh, from a, from a military standpoint, they. They certainly aren't doing any sweet talk, and they're quite the opposite. They're being very threatening, particularly with regards to China. And I guess the path that the U.S. is going to take 
with regard to China is yeah. has to do, a lot to do with the upcoming elections. And mm-hmm. why don't you give us your thoughts there? Uh, well, just one more thought on the, the, the China situation, and that is I think that speech that he just gave in San Francisco is an indication of weakness. It's an indication of concern about the domestic economy because he was sitting there where an audience was full of American CEOs and and other capitalists, basically asked them to invest in China uh, after he uh, made many of them leave because of uh, uh, the regulatory and supervi- supervision uh, tightening that ha- happened over there. With regards to the domestic uh, elections, I, I, I I'm I'm clueless. I mean, you know, I, 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 right now it looks like. It's going to be uh, Biden versus Trump. I mean, it's like, uh, uh, here we go again. Um, and um, I think uh, a lot of us would uh, like a, uh, a younger crowd uh, that's uh, less uh, partisan than, than uh, the, these two old guys. Uh, but uh, look, my, my job isn't to uh, take sides in the domestic partisan uh, debate. I have my own opinions, but I've often pointed out uh, when it comes to investing, you want to leave your uh, politics uh, out, of, out of the discussion, uh, out of your thought process. What you really need to do is think about how the policies and the consequences of these politics are, are going to have on the stock market, the bond market. And it's been my observation over the years that isn't it amazing how well the country's done, how well the stock market's done in the face of uh, all this meddling that's coming out of Washington, all the uh, all the noise that's coming out of Washington. So I, I remain optimistic that uh, despite Washington, uh, the economy is going to continue to perform well and that the stock market is going to continue to perform well. I point out to people, look, uh, you know, the, the headlines are all about what's going on in, in Washington, fiscal policy, monetary policy. Uh, what doesn't really make the news is that uh, we, uh, you know, uh, working stiffs uh, get up in the morning and go to work. Uh, some of some of us are literally working stiffs, working for somebody else. Some of us are uh, working stiffs that are running things. Uh, but anyway, you look at it, uh, we're working hard, and we're working hard to make things better for ourselves, our families, our communities, our country. Uh, and we do that uh, d- despite the obstacles uh, put in our way uh, by uh, folks in Washington and maybe some other parts of the country. But uh, on balance. Uh, we continue to make things better. Real GDP is at all-time record high. Consumer spending, all-time record high. Consumer spending per household, all-time record high. I mean, you can watch the news and get pretty depressed. You can listen to some of Wall Street strategists and get pretty depressed. Uh, I've been on the, the more optimistic side, and so far that's working out pretty well. Uh, I could not agree more. And you're right. At the end of the day, Everybody wants the same thing. They just want a roof over their head, food on the table, and just to provide for their families. And um, I think, as you mentioned, millions of people in the U.S. want to do that. And that's why the U.S. economy continues to do so well in spite of who's in office. Yeah, Americans are very aspirational. I I think they want more than just a a roof – and, and food, I think they want a pool. I think they want a tennis court. It's the aspirations that, uh, you know, that people have. Uh, not all of them can achieve it, but, you know, we're seeing a lot of people going traveling now. Some go uh, uh, and spend a lot of money. Others are able to take some great cruises uh, with uh, 
you know, with, with really good pricing. Uh, I, I have an aunt in the business, so give me a call if, uh, if you want a deal. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I think, uh, as, as pessimistic as people are, uh, the, the, the macroeconomic data shows that things have never been, been better. And I get a lot of pushback on that. A lot of people say, you know, you obviously don't go shopping or this and that, but I, I do go shopping and I, I think I do have a realistic sense of what's going on in the economy and the stock market so far has validated my optimism. So you're very bullish on the economy, very bullish on the markets overall, but if there was one thing that would change your view, what would it be? Well, I think we already discussed it. Uh, I think the uh, the two scenarios that I anticipated uh, were sort of the alternative uh, outlooks for the current decade. And I started talking about this in the 2020 uh, with the pandemic and increasingly uh, when we saw the inflation consequences of the pandemic, I said, look, it's either going to be the great inflation all over again, the great inflation, they call it the great inflation in the 1970s, but it actually started in the mid-60s when Johnson financed the Vietnam War with deficit uh, spending. And um, it really ended in the early 80s when uh, after Volcker increased interest rates dramatically. We had twin peaks in inflation because of the twin energy crises. Uh, labor unions were much more powerful, so when the price of gasoline went up dramatically twice, that got passed through into wages very quickly through cost of living adjustments. So I said, that's one scenario. The other scenario is the roaring 2020s. It kind of rhymes with the, the roaring 1920s. And I think there are similarities. There's differences. Uh, we had uh, much more conservative uh, presidents uh, in the 1920s. And now I don't know what we have uh, right now, but certainly you wouldn't des describe it as anything comparable to the hands-off laissez-faire approach that we had in the 1920s. Uh, but again, when you kind of look beyond the politics and all that, what you see is during the 1920s, we had tremendous technological innovations that uh, were very uh, good at increasing productivity across a whole range of industries and created a whole bunch of uh, uh, new products that consumers made consumers' life better, increased prosperity, washing machines and electricity and, and uh, plumbing, uh, basic kind of stuff. Uh, now in the 2020s, we have... Uh, We'll see how artificial intelligence comes along. I think there's, I, I, I think it's going to be an important technology, but I, I think there might be a little bit too much expectation short term. Meanwhile, we got plenty of uh, innovations in automation and robotics, uh, and so I think there's enough going on that in technology that companies can use technology to increase productivity, and in fact they have to because there's a shortage of labor, particularly skilled labor. So which is it going to be? Is it going to be the great inflation of the 1970s. I'm less convinced of that now. Um, never really thought that was the most likely scenario. I've been in the roaring 2020s camp. I feel I'm more comfortable with it uh, of late. Um, you know, when artificial intelligence uh, kind of uh, hit, hit the, the, the media with chat GPT, uh, that's when the stock market really started uh, taking off in the mega cap eight. I call them mega cap eight. I just call them the magnificent seven. They started taking off. Um, but I think we are already in a bull market that's anticipating the roaring 2020s. You raised some very interesting points there. And I want to touch on the point you made about the 1970s and the oil embargo. 
And as a reminder to our viewers, the price of oil went from $3 a barrel to $11 a barrel in a very short period of time. Right. <laughs> if that were to happen now, oh my God. Yeah, exactly. Imagine going to the pumps and paying 200 bucks <laughs> a barrel. Well, yeah, well, you know that the, the Saudis and the Russians tried to push the price of oil back up to $100 during the summer when they announced that they were cutting back uh, production. And to my knowledge, they haven't reversed that and said they're going to increase their production. But instead of the price going up to 100 look where it is now. It's substantially below that. So um, I think it just demonstrates supply and demand is what drives the price of oil and other commodities. And the market mechanism is working to the advantage of uh, consumers, or at least it's not as easily manipulated by the uh, the OPEC countries as, as they had hoped. Ed, you have a very extensive library behind you. And I'm right. curious, what books are you reading right now on the economy or any other subjects? Well, uh, I, I, I do like uh, his, history books. And uh, so uh, r right now uh, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the, so, some of the books about the, the, the 1920s, uh, kind of chapters from some of these uh, histories. And, uh, you know, it just makes me feel more confident that um, in ter terms of the technological innovations, they're, they're certainly there. I mean, you know, I've, I've read some of the biographies of the uh, so-called uh, the, the 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 barons. The, they call them the robber barons, but the reality is, the robber barons uh, from the late 1800s uh, right into the 1920s uh, created all sorts of uh, technologies uh, and products that uh, increased the standard of living. Uh, John D. Rockefeller basically invented kerosene and gasoline. Ford uh, basically uh, popularized and uh, made affordable the the automobile, um, and uh, you know Westinghouse uh, electrified the country. So uh, there was uh, tremendous innovations, and I think uh, you know here we are in 2024. I mean, back in 2000, 2024 was the future, and it's here now. And the question is, is it is it meaningfully better? And I think in many ways it is. Well, Ed, that was a fascinating discussion. And if someone would like to learn more about you and the services that you offer, where can they go? Well, we created a research product for individual investors uh, about a year ago. It's called Yardeni, Y-A-R-D-E-N-I, Yardeni, quicktakes.com. So they could go there. Uh, basically, the, the institutional uh, product is available at yardeni.com. Uh, both are available on a trial basis, so they can have a look there. Well, that's great. And you're also active on YouTube. What's your YouTube channel? Yeah, um, I don't even know to tell you the truth. Uh, I think you just search me on YouTube and I'll be there. Well, that's great. I want to thank you very much for spending time with us today, Ed, and I look forward to our next discussion. My pleasure indeed. Thank you. Best to all the folks who tuned in. Well, I hope you enjoyed that discussion with Ed Yardeni. And if you have any ideas on other guests that we should bring on the channel, please let us know in the comments section below. We want to hear your thoughts. We do these interviews for you, the viewer, to help guide you through these uncertain times. And if you need assistance with that, consider having a discussion with a Wealthion endorsed financial advisor at Wealthion.com. All advisors have been vetted by Wealthion. There's no obligation or commitment on your part to work with any of these advisors. It's simply a free service that we offer to all viewers.
Don't forget to subscribe to our channel, WealthyOn.com, and hit the notification button to be kept up to date on future events. We have some amazing content coming up here in the coming days and weeks that will help you with your financial future. And the best part is it's all free. Thank you again for your support, and thanks for spending time with us today. Thank you.